one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Episode 409 for the week of Monday, March 19th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Uh, suffering the ravages of yet another virus, but still here, Sawyer. How you doing tonight? I'm okay, thanks. Staying as far away as possible. How's that? <laughs> it's a wise move, sir. Wise move. <laughs> and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. So 409, I thought that was a cleaning product for countertops and flat surfaces. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to say that tonight. True. Well, we do have something that we need to clean up really quickly, so let's get our <laughs> spray bottle. So, Gene, if you want to take the spray bottle out and take care of this really quickly before we get started, this is extremely important that we need to take care of. Yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and get the chlorine out on this one um, to just fill everybody in i was doing my homework for the show uh, i usually go ahead and do that over the weekend and, and peruse the internet to see uh, if there's any stories that i think that you guys might want to hear and uh, i stumbled across one story about uh, the about russia's space plans and i looked at it and uh, through a website called the daily tech that's www.dailytech.com because what drew drew my attention to them was quite frankly seeing our logo on their website I, in association with this article uh, that they have up here. Uh, Russia's plans include spacecraft to moon, Jupiter, Mars, Venus by 2030. I'm looking at the article right now. It was written by a lady, I guess, by the name of T Tiffany Kaiser. Um, so I, I was not really happy about that when I saw that. In fact, I actually wrote a uh, thing in the comments section, uh, quote, and I'm quoting directly from there, Quote, thank you for, at, for the advertising on our, for our internet radio show, Talking Space, and I leave our URL, and using our logo, but it would have been nice to ask our permission first before using it in association with the article. Flattered that you think enough of us to use it, but I sort of wish you'd asked us first. And another gentleman by the name of, um, he goes by the handle of Johnson X, just say, says that uh, this seems very not cool of Daily Tech. However, I'm pleased to discover your program and might just give it a listen. Well, I hope you're listening. Uh, you know, I appreciate the support. Appreciate uh, the concurrence. Yeah, again, this is you know, again, not cool of this particular website. Uh, we wouldn't do it to you. Uh, we wouldn't use, um, in fact, any uh, uh, property that is considered uh, you know proprietary, like a logo or anything like that, without you know written or uh, or verbal consent. And uh, I kind of wish you guys went ahead and uh, asked us first before going ahead and using it. Again, the, the Talking Space is not affiliated with Daily Tech. It never will be. And uh, we have no ties to them whatsoever. And I'd really appreciate it, folks, if you'd go ahead and take that particular website down. 
So we'll just uh, keep you updated, and uh, we'll see what happens here. So while we're on this topic and before we begin, it's time for the legal stuff. Talking Space is not associated with Daily Tech or any of its affiliates, who has recently in an article used our name and logo. Secondly, Talking Space is a registered trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And third, the Talking Space logo is used on all registered Talking Space-related items with express written permission from the logo designer. Just wanted to get all of that out of the way and out in the open so everybody knows that in the future. So if you're going to use our name first, just please ask us. We don't mind you using it. We just want to want you to you know just ask us and and let us know what you're using it for and if it's it fits with what we're doing here. By all means, we'll we'll go ahead and endorse you and 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 say hey yeah we'll we'll allow you to use the logo in association with this. But this was completely and totally unauthorized. So now I'm putting my bottle of 409 away, and um, we'll we'll move on. Indeed, if you have any queries about using the name, you can send those to us at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. So now that we're done with the legal stuff, let's spray that clean. Let's get out our paper towels and clean that off and switch gears to something that actually hit a major news network over this past weekend. 60 Minutes, uh, the uh, CBS News Magazine show over uh, the weekend showed a rather interesting profile of uh, Mr. Elon Musk, who runs uh, Space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX. I saw it. It was not exactly earth-shattering, a lot of the news there. It was more of a profile of what drives Mr. Musk and uh, what uh, makes him do what he's doing with with both his other company, Tesla, and uh, and now uh, Space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX, as it's affectionately known as, um, it uh, it kind of coincides with a really neat press release that uh, SpaceX showed on their website. It shows the interior of the Dragon with a few uh, familiar faces in there, um, Rex Waldheim and a few other uh, shuttle. I've noticed uh, one or two. Uh, uh, actually, uh, four shuttle astronauts sitting in there along with, with some of the engineers, and it's it, it looks kind of big, actually. I, I didn't think it was going to be as um, as big on the inside as it does look, look, but it doesn't look claustrophobic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this also coming on the heels of uh, the fact that uh, NASA has said that, uh, and I'm, I'm reading from an article here uh, from uh, uh, AL.com, uh, that SpaceX is going to go ahead and try to dock the, the Dragon capsule with uh, the ISS in May. However, the stipulation is that the space that uh, the Dragon will have to go ahead and demonstrate it could safely approach the ISS first and sort of fly under it, and then turn around, and then if that maneuver gets pulled off and pulled off well, then they'll go ahead and allow Dragon to uh, to uh, make a call on the ISS and dock. Uh, again, it, it would be a, it's an historic moment. It's the first commercial entity to go ahead and dock with the, a with a U.S. spacecraft. So with or excuse me, with an international uh, complex. I'm sorry, not just a U.S. spacecraft. So uh, again, we're looking forward to some really big stuff. So again, that that launch, as far as I know, as at this point, is still scheduled for the end of April, around the April 30th time frame. And uh, if all goes well, uh, we should have a uh, a new uh, uh, commercial carrier to go ahead and and carry uh, uh, goods and uh, supplies up to the International Space Station and hopefully take some of the pressure off of our Russian friends. 
I, taking a look at a little bit, I didn't get to see the entire segment, but looking at the actual vehicle itself, like you were saying, for a seven-person vehicle, it looked relatively spacious, including some of the pictures online that I've seen. Yeah, the the ones that I'm looking at, Sawyer, again, are from the, the SpaceX website itself. And, uh, I again, I could see a couple of uh, uh, familiar faces in there. Um, mm-hmm. Doug Hurley, one, and uh, I think Tim Coper is also somewhere in, that wood, somewhere in there. You actually saw the the Dragon prototype that flew in, um, that uh, that they used for the first flight. No, Sawyer, that thing with I think was de- was, yes. was displayed at at uh, there. What was what was your your impression of it, if you recall? I oh I can definitely recall. It, I thought it was really unique. Basically, it looked like if you were at a campfire roasting marshmallows. That's kind of what it looked like. <laughs> Very charred and black. From the re-entry, but it, it almost was a marshmallow shape rather than a capsule shape like you might see, you know, during the Apollo days or the current planned Orion vehicle. So like a rounded rectangle rather than a regular capsule design. And I, it was really interesting to actually see it, but for that prototype itself, it's going to have to be a little bit bigger because that itself did not look very roomy. Yeah, if you look at the photographs, it looked fairly fairly comfortable in there. In fact, uh, one of the things that uh, I think I, I forget the reporter that did did the spot now. Uh, he asked Elon Musk about the windows in a cargo vehicle, and he said, "Well, yeah, that's uh, Musk." said, "Well, yeah, that, that's for the future. That's from when we start flying crews." So he was trying, I guess, trying to lead him into that as far as flying crew on the IS uh, to the ISS. Uh, I, I guess again we're looking at uh, you know again a, a new quote new era close quote um, for uh, for at least getting crew to the International Space Station. But a lot of the other uh, space faithful out there were you know I, I was monitoring commentary on Twitter uh, as far as the actual uh, uh, presentation went on CBS and a lot of people were, were kind of looking at it as a yawner. And uh, basically, well, you know, not a lot of stuff, not nothing we didn't already know. Yeah, you know, for you and me and, and probably for this audience, it, it, that, that expose wasn't anything that wasn't really, really known. But for the individual that doesn't follow the program and doesn't follow what's going on, that was a perfect primer um, for what's to come. And I got a couple of questions about that from a couple of people on Twitter, and I just wanted to go ahead and thank those folks for for asking those questions. And uh, um, the biggest one was, why didn't we know about this? Well, the information's out there. It's just yeah, it's not being popularized enough. So um, this is the really first step that I've seen at trying to get the message out there about all, all about CC Dev. So uh, thanks to to uh, the Columbia Broadcasting System for going ahead and get them getting that out for us. Yes, indeed. So <laughs> I would definitely take a look at that. I believe this is – I'm not sure if this works internationally, but if you are in the United States, you can go to CBS.com, click on the 60 Minutes link, and you can find the clip to the video there. To anybody who's overseas, I apologize about not being sure on that. All right, so let's continue along. And while we're talking about dockings, we're going to go all over with a couple of countries on these first bunch of stories here on our rounds around the table. So we're going to go from that. Now we're going to go to China. And we've talked about this before. China has their space station up in orbit, the Tianyang-1, which had recently docked with the unmanned Shenzhou-8. Now, the interesting thing is that coming up, is the first manned mission to 
the Tianyang, and China is working on getting its crew. Now, there were talks about this way, way back when we first discussed this story. I say way back, that was in November of 2011. As China is narrowing down its astronaut selections, it has included a female astronaut, or as they call them, Taikonauts. Now, the new batch, including female astronauts, according to their state news agency, since if I messed it up, I apologize, Xinhua is selecting their group, and they won't announce the final group until closer to launch date, which is scheduled sometime between June and August of 2012. But this will be interesting, because they're only the third country to send men up into space on their own rocket. And now, this would be the third country to send up a woman as well on their own rocket. Pretty interesting, huh? Yep. It looks like it's just another step in the progression for China. And, uh, you know, we, we wish them well. But, uh, again, this is all a learning curve for them. Uh, there were some talks about is uh, Xianxu safe. A while back ago, I remember reading a, a Space Daily article uh, some, some months back about uh, – uh, the pot, the delay that there has been, because I believe this, there was a, uh, um, I think this, I think the next uh, Shansi vehicle should have gone up already, and um, uh, there was some uh, somebody out there saying that, well, you know, this may not be a, a safe vehicle. It's probably why it's being delayed. I'm like, well, there's no evidence of that. But then again, the Chinese are so close to the vest, it's hard to really tell what's going on over there. But uh, again, it's a good first step. They've, they're, they're, they're again, they're, they're in a learning curve. They're basically in our Gemini days, but uh, we've kind of sort of given them the playbook to go ahead and uh, and uh, uh, judge, you know, judge success from. So again, hope hope things go well for them, and uh, we'll just have to uh, we'll be watching and hopefully and uh, and hope, hoping things go well. Indeed, China so far has launched since 2003 six Taikonauts. And the launch, scheduled again sometime between June and August of this year, will be atop a Chinese Long March 2F rocket from Inner Mongolia. So, with that, let's hand it over to Mark and see which country we're heading to next on the map. Well, how about a little blurb from the FAA side of the house? And this was something, interestingly enough, that I just saw today as a uh, little headline in a... FAA email that pops out with stories from around the country, and in particular, this regards Spaceship Two and Mojave. And from the Tehachapi News, I find that the FAA is conducting an environmental assessment to determine whether flights of White Knight Two and Spaceship Two from the Mojave Air and Spaceport will be allowed. Now, the time frame that uh, that this environmental assessment application is for is from 2012 to 2016 and they've announced that they're working on this draft environmental assessment and it's interesting that if it's approved they would issue experimental permits and launch licenses okay I have to wonder if they don't issue those launch licenses what's the impact basically it allows the uh, Mojave Air and Spaceport to be used. Otherwise, they would have to transport their aircraft and spaceship out of that area to some other area that this permitting process would, would have to go through as well. So anyway, it's a technicality. But if you've ever wondered how 
complicated spaceflight is, let's talk about this draft environmental assessment that includes some little details such as air quality, biological resources, including fish, wildlife, and plants, historical, architectural, archaeological, and cultural resources, hazardous materials, pollution prevention, solid waste, health and safety, land use, including DOT section four, four, including DOT section 4F properties, light emissions, visual resources, noise and compatible land use, socioeconomic resources, environmental justice, children's environmental health and safety, and cumulative impacts. So all of those things will have to be addressed. And I wonder who the burden of this environmental assessment falls on. Well, I would have to think it goes upon the parties that are planning to operate White Knight 2 and Spaceship 2. And some of that is the burden of government on business and the burden of government on people. And uh, I know you have to do these things, but gee whiz. And, and this is for a conservative number of what they're saying would be 30 launches and re-entries per year a total of up to 150 launches and re-entries between the 2012 and 2016 that I already mentioned. And they say that it would consider possibly multiple launches per day and some potential launch aborts. So the process is moving forward, which is good news because you got to have the paperwork, maybe not quite as high as the shuttle stack in order for Spaceship Two to fly, but I bet the paperwork burden is nothing to sneeze at. Did I hear that right, Mark? Fish? You're in the desert for blank's sake. <laughs> I mean, wait, yeah, but but you <laughs> you gotta see which way's the wind blowing. Where's the pollution from this rocket exhaust gonna go? And it could possibly fall on a body of water, a river, a lake, a puddle. You know, uh, so oh. this has to be considered. I'm I'm just thinking. I guess Xcore is going to have to go through this mess too, because they're well, the, the, the with, with the links. They're the other company that's hoping to do suborbital flight from from different locations. Anybody who wants to fly has to get their uh, application approved by the FAA. Oh boy, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm guessing now. This is out of Mojave, right? So I'm guessing now that, that with all all of the the. You know, the, the I's that need to be dotted and T's that need to be crossed. The old SLF is going to be very, very busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've certainly got practice with environmental assessment and, uh, and preserving their environment there, which they're, they're famous for is their concern for the wildlife and the, essentially a wildlife refuge around the, uh, around the pads and the whole Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral complex. So um, it's all good. And it's it's paperwork, and there's people that specialize in that, and I'm sure they're glad to have jobs to handle this, to move us forward in, in commercial space flight, suborbital flight in particular. It's getting a little hotter out in the desert thanks to the FAA. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, that's perfect for Mark. He's the weather guy, so. Yep. All right, we've made one trip around the table. We've covered the U.S. We've covered China. Now it looks like we're going to Russia next, Gene? Yeah, we certainly are. Um, I was looking at uh, wired.co.uk over the weekend, and apparently a interesting little paper got leaked. Uh, this is concerning Russia's long-range uh, 
plans for its space program. They include uh, up until the next oh, 18 years or so. I'm looking at a, a article from Wired Science, uh, essentially outlining what Russia is going to go ahead and do for the next 18 years. And again, this is this is from a report that apparently got leaked somehow. Um, they're going to replace the Soyuz booster uh, with uh, another another uh, vehicle called the uh, Angara rocket, um, and that will become the booster of choice for Russian payloads from the new Cosmodrome, which is going to be about east of Russia, and that's going to go ahead and replace uh, what the article describes as the outdated Baikonur Cosmodrome. The new facility, I believe, according to the article here, started construction in 2011, and is scheduled to com- be completed by 2018. So I'm guessing that the heart, the bulk of all the operations that you're seeing today at a Baikonur, which is out in, in Kazakhstan, is going to switch over to this facility. Uh, by 2030, Russia hopes to uh, send robots to the lunar surface and uh, for uh, Sentinel return missions, followed by a, uh, a human uh, landing on, on the moon, uh, coinciding with uh, what the article ho- says they're hoping will be the 60th anniversary of Neil Armstrong's landing on the surface of the moon. It will be very, very interesting to see if that actually comes comes to pass if if Russia lands on the moon on you know July 20th. And again, the, the, it seems like the government's uh, really, really behind it. Uh, the the article is reporting on a, a comment that uh, Vladimir Putin made um, last year at the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's mission that Russia should not limit itself to the role of international space ferryman. We need to increase our presence in the global space market, close quote. Now, this all comes to pass... Um, on a uh, you know uh, on a really really sour note, in fact, uh, again, sir, the, from the same news agency in China that you reported, um, Russia's Russia's saying um, that uh, Roscosmos is denying basically that uh, the new uh, International Space Station laboratory that they want to send up is going to be delayed. Uh, the new lab, which is planned currently for uh, 2013, according to uh, an article I'm looking at from the uh, Chinese News Service here, dated March 16th, uh, basically saying that this that the new lab is going to be delayed till about uh, 2014, um, but the Roscosmos is denying it. This is to go ahead and replace the, uh, the Piers uh, module, uh, which was launched back in 2001. This is all coming on the heels, by the way, of some rather, rather sour grapes that has been coming out of Russia and their space program of late. Uh, we all know, you know, the, 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 the actual Soyuz spacecraft problem that occurred a couple years back with, uh, with the orbital module and the descent module not separating properly. That got fixed. Um, we had the, the most recent mishaps with the Soyuz booster itself. That appears to have been repaired. And then, of course, the the latest debacle, the Phobos Grunt uh, mission, which unfortunately you know did not not did not occur. Instead of instead of soft land landing on the Martian moon, Phobos, it uh, ended up somewhere in the drink. So um, again, these are some really interesting long range plans, but are they capable of doing them? And uh, the idea too is 
Does their infrastructure support it? Does their technology support it? Yeah, it probably supports the new booster, but all this other stuff, they're they're really going to have to go to work work on. And they haven't been very very successful at Mars. I know that for you know more times than not, a lot of their mission, a lot of the the Roscosmos missions have not made it to to Mars. So. Hopefully they're going to have a little bit better luck on luck getting getting to the moon. It's a little easier to get there, and uh, you know we'll just have to see how things go work with them. Alrighty then. So let's continue on to our next story. For this one, this one actually we're going to leave Earth for a little bit. We're not going to worry about countries. We're going to head out to Mars for this next story, and this still has to do a little bit with Earth itself and a search for life on Mars. Now, there was a recent survey that was taken of 226 ancient lake beds on Mars in search of mud or clay that would be ideal for preserving fossil records, such as those that you would see on the banks of a river or any such body of water here on Earth. Now, of those 226 that were taken a look at, about one-third of them, or 79 in total of those, contained deposits of minerals that could hint at clays on the surface. Now, this was done by using some of the current satellites, such as the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Odyssey, and Mars Express. They took a look down, and they took a look at the reflected light to see the chemical composition. Based on that, they were able to figure out the composition of the surface. And it's interesting, because it's not as much as they thought, which could mean a couple of things. It could mean that the water on the red planet itself only stuck around for a really brief amount of time which would be a big sign of that. And this could also be a result of the chemistry of the mixing of the Martian water and the surrounding land, or whatever the composition of the water was. So this brings up some really interesting thoughts there. It brings up some past about Mars's water history, as well as the fact that there may not be as much, but there still is some of that stuff that life could possibly be hiding in. Yeah, I, th- I actually think that a lot of the water just, just you know, kind of vanished as uh, I'm, I'm kind of in, in the other school of thought that you're, you're thinking, Sawyer. Um, yeah, the, the evidence is quite, you know, is there that uh, um, Mars was a far more wider place than it is now. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that... that uh, a lot of that water is either trapped somewhere or may not be there anymore. So we'll just have to see. Exactly. Because the other thing is that the article from Space.com that I was reading mentioned that some of it possibly was underneath the surface because of the actual motion and because of volcanic activity and other items that occurred after they became inactive more than 3.7 billion years ago. This could actually cover up some of the beds and icy glaciers creeping down, hiding others. So there may be more, but they may be hidden, which is also really an interesting thought. Sorry, does does the article sort of allude to where the, the, the that the water might hidden? Uh-huh. I know I know they say underground, but is there any way, shape, or form that they may might find? You know, where would be the best place to go ahead and look for this? They're not necessarily looking for water. Because basically, if you look at any bit of sediment here on Earth next to any body of water, you will find some form of life in it. So what they're trying to find is they're trying to find that clay to see if they can find fossilized life forms, possibly, on the actual surface. So that could be a possible future mission to take a look at the actual sediment and see 
if there are fossils inside of it because that's what they're really looking for is the material itself and the possibility that that the water once was there and because of that that life once thrived on its banks so hopefully there is life somewhere in those banks and that could reveal a lot about mars's past history and our own possibly all right so we still have one more person left on this go around so mark it's back to you where are we taking this story let's talk about uh, things that don't go well and possibly turning them around summer of 2011 russia launched a communications satellite that didn't make it into its proper orbit it was headed for a geostationary orbit and it didn't make it since then the insurance company that provided protection for that declared it a total loss now what happens well william reddy co-founder of Polar Broadband Systems has come up with a proposal. Interestingly enough, he's also a former space shuttle commander. He docked with Russia's Mir Orbital Station in September 96 and was the uh, chief NASA representative at Star City. He's helped uh, when he had a stint as deputy associate NASA administrator for space operations. He developed a plan for the National Science Foundation to use an old TDRS satellite for communications to Antarctica. This plan that they've come up with, and it's just a plan at this point because they're talking about deorbiting the Express AM4 satellite. They're talking about deorbiting it. But the plan is to take it from its stranded orbit of an inclination of 51 degrees to put it into a, a bit more of an orbit that would provide 14 to 16 hour a day satellite uh, communications coverage for Antarctica. Currently what they do have is through the TDRS satellite which gives them a low horizon link during its uh, drift to the south back and forth across the equator. They get a low horizon link to the TDRS that gives them some satellite communications. Now the satellite itself it has 64 transponders in the L, C, K, U, and K, A bands. This Astrium-built satellite has an anticipated life of uh, better than 10 years for the proposal that they're working on. They have enough fuel to provide station keeping and to put it in the uh, orbit that they want. It'll be in a safe orbit. It'll be clear of the geostationary satellites, and I think it's kind of interesting to have a proposal like this. The satellite's already been paid for by insurance, but their proposal is to sell it back to Polar Broadband if the group, if the working group approves of it, and then to use it for the satellite communications, like I said. Now, other nations in Antarctica could be other potential clients, and the uh, break-even point for this proposal is halfway through their 10-year planned period of operations. Now, what's the advantage of this? National Science Foundation drew bids last year of $100 million to $500 million for satellite services. And this salvaged spacecraft could provide comparable services for about $20 million. So how's that for saving the day? If it's accepted, of course. Not bad, Mark. And again, you know, to to get back to the problem of orbital debris again, this satellite that you're describing would have gone that route, no? Where it would just been a derelict and and eventually would have re-entered the atmosphere, and and that would have been it. Correct. 
Oh, yeah. And this was actually one of four launches that didn't go too well for the, our Russian friends last year. A couple of communication satellites, a certain progress cargo rocket to the ISS, and the uh, Phobos grunt that we've talked about plenty. All of those didn't go too well. And this is one that they could actually uh, save the day with. By the way, I would be sure. remiss and not acknowledging where I found this story. It was from Aviation Week from a writer that we've had on the show, Frank Mooring Jr. And uh, appreciate uh, stumbling across that and the great write-up that he gave that I've been quoting. Yeah, great. And um, the, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I, I recall some conversations I, I've, I've had with some folks in, in, the debris, in the debris mitigation area where they talk about possibly, you know, sort of repositioning and reusing some of this stuff. Um, and again, this is a classic example of that. And uh, just a little ingenuity, and the uh, satellite has has new life and uh, a new purpose. So, um, again, and and once again, getting rid of a lot of you know, uh, getting rid of a lot of space debris. So again, bravo. Indeed, space junk still always a prevalent news story. Amen. Wow. All right. So with that, that brings us to our final go around around the table and our last three stories and gene it goes back to you and which country are we hitting this time we're back here in the u.s there sawyer but uh, actually two just two little tidbits of news something i just saw on twitter i'm trying to confirm it now but i saw that the uh the grail mission had had reported that it had gotten extended um again this is as to record this it is monday march 19 2012 i'm going to do some digging around and and get back to everybody and confirm that but so far you know from what i'm seeing everybody's going bonkers on twitter that uh, uh grail has been extended um the other thing i wanted to mention too and we've talked about this particular flight a little bit on the program um the uh nuclear spectroscopic telescope array or new star um, has been postponed. It was supposed to be launched last week, um, but apparently there is a little software glitch between the Pegasus XL and the, uh, the satellite itself. The Pegasus XL is, is the uh, is the booster that, that's going to go ahead and and, uh, and set uh, New Star off on its way. And, um, and again, it's just a little software thing. They want to go ahead and take a look at it, make sure that the software that they have on board the spacecraft is is certified and good to go. And once they've gone ahead and done that, they'll go ahead and reschedule the launch. I've heard somewhere around March, you know, the late March time frame. So we'll just have to keep an eye on that one. I should mention, too, that the uh, um, telescope is going to be designed. Uh, it's designed to go ahead and uh, take a look at the sun, black holes, and other you know, very, very interesting objects here. And the article that I'm citing here is from the Associated Press, dated Friday, March 16th. Alrighty then. So now we're going to move on to something relating to the month. Most people in the United States, at least, know about March Madness. Well, NASA is aptly titled this next story, Launch Madness. As NASA gets ready to launch five rockets in about five minutes from the Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia. Now, the experiment is called the Anomalous Transport Rocket Experiment, or ATREX. And basically... It's a mission that will gather some information to understand 
high-altitude jet streams located about 60 to 65 miles above the surface of the Earth. The winds in these have speeds sometimes of 200 to 300 miles an hour and create some very important transport. So it's a great way to learn a little bit about the actual jet stream. Now, the rockets that are being used, what they're actually going to do is they will release a chemical tracer that will form a milky white tracer cloud that allows scientists, as well as you, the public, to actually, quote-unquote, see the winds of space. And some of those rockets as well, two of them, in fact, will have some instruments on board that will be measuring pressure and temperature. Now, the launch window is not the smallest window. The launch window opened on March 14th and closes April 3rd with the launch window being from midnight to 5 a.m. Eastern Time. Nice and narrow, right? The current scheduled launch is for the date of this release, so this may be slightly out of date if it has launched, and that launch date is scheduled for March 21st, which is Wednesday. The visibility of this, if you live in the northeastern part of the United States, in fact, the eastern part, you have a good chance. The visible area, it goes as far south as the southern border of North Carolina, and as far north as about Syracuse, New York. In terms of west, it goes till about the southwestern border of Pennsylvania, and eastern-wise, it goes way out into the ocean. So there's a good chance for you on the east coast to see these five rockets, which will be launched within five minutes, so you can look for that milky white stream in the sky. It's going to be kind of fun. We're going to be going ahead and looking out for it over here in northwest Jersey. We'll we'll take a look and see if we can find it. All right. As always, it comes down to the last story, and once again, the man who gets this last story is Mark, so let's take us out on a good note. One place you'd hope to not have a power failure is if you were, say, one of the happy little electronic circuits on an all-electric satellite. This is about an article, again, from Aviation Week, from a writer there, Amy Svitak. And this is about Boeing Space Systems signing an estimated $400 million deal with Asia Broadcast Satellite, ABS, and Satellites Mexicanos, SatMex, to build the first all-electric commercial telecom spacecraft for launch to geostationary orbit. Now, what makes it all-electric is that instead of conventional chemical propulsion, they have a plan to use lightweight xenon-fueled ion thrusters. Imagine if you cut the satellite's weight in half. That's going to cut launch costs. And depending on the size, you could save fleet operators millions of dollars in launch expenditures with potentially no impact to the satellite's capability or performance. Now, one of the drawbacks to this is that uh, conventional chemical propulsion puts a satellite in a short period of time up to geostationary orbit. In a matter of uh, a, few, a few months at probably most. But an all-electric satellite with these ion thrusters would spend as much as six months using slow pulses of the ion propulsion system to maneuver into their final orbiting slot. Now, Boeing Satellite System said the total cost to market, they expect it to be significantly different for a satellite operator than what it is currently. Again, most of these satellites that, uh, that we see in space for decades now separate from their launch vehicles. They go into an equatorial parking orbit, and after several days, they circulate their path and end up at 22,000 miles above the equator. To facilitate orbit raising and maintain position over 15 years, the satellites with a chemical propellant 
have as much as 50% or more of their total weight as the propellant itself. But using the Xenon gas is quite a way to save some weight. And Boeing currently has 18 satellites, but they're using these ion propulsion thrusters for station keeping. They've never used it before to actually go from a transfer orbit to a final geostationary one. Now, what to me is interesting is that these satellites that are going to be lighter weight can be launched and as a pair on board, guess what, Falcon 9. They can use two of them in a stack configuration and fly them to orbit. So now you got two satellites at 2,000 kilograms or less that you can put on a Falcon 9, and with a price differential there, that changes the equation too and makes it more tempting, more appealing to the satellite operators. Another thing that you don't have to be quite as concerned about if you have an equatorial launch site, that gives you a boost in terms of payload that you can put up there. But now, with a lighter weight satellite, you can launch from places like uh, Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan or Cape Canaveral. Now, Boeing is the only commercial satellite builder that has an all-electric product ready for sale. But probably that's not going to stay there too long because Astrium Satellites is working on an all-electric product. And Space Systems Loral expect to have something ready for commercial sale within a year. Other satellite manufacturers are interested in the technology, but they say that matching Boeing prices could be a challenge. And that includes executives from Thales Alenia Space and from Lockheed Martin Commercial Space Systems. And basically they say, we got electric propulsion, but not at the price point that you're seeing here. And this project, interestingly, could serve as an incubator for the direction Boeing hopes to take all of its satellite platforms. So, interesting, with things being a, a conventional way and, you know, you kind of imagine how business is done in, in certain parts of the space business, that there are developments and changes coming. Mark, are they actually talking about incorporating electrical propulsion in some of the satellites at this point? Yeah, Boeing has plans to have this satellite for Asia Broadcast and for uh, Satellite Mexicanos that will be all electric, no chemical propulsion at all. Wow. Um, got, I'm got, the deal, got the deal signed. Just uh, I don't have anything anticipated for a launch date, uh, at least if I did, I missed it, but uh, it's for well, multiple satellites for them as well. What I'm thinking of, Mark, is this may port itself over to the human side eventually, where you know on orbit once we're there, you know we're not talking we're not talking chemical rockets at all for for steering or anything like that. We're actually talking electrical propulsion. That'd be that'd be very interesting. Yeah, perhaps on ISS two, maybe. As in ISS version 2.0, not the current ISS. <laughs> but you never know. And with that, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks a whole bunch. It was a lot of fun tonight. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good stories. Thanks, everybody. And of course, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.